Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Hey guys, are you planning your next litter of puppies? Or maybe you just finished your foundation bitch and you're ready to start some health testing. Embark, creator of the highest rated dog DNA test on the market, offers specialized testing just for breeders. And while they're offering a few different tests, only the Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit was made to provide breed relevant disease screening for your purebred dogs. It includes traits testing, like coat color and body size, DLA diversity testing, breed ancestry, easy to download OFA submission reports, and the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK to enjoy $20 off each Embark for Breeders dog DNA test kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And you guys, I am so excited today. I have Betsy Hornhumer joining us. And Betsy is someone I have long admired for her work with Chesapeake Bay Retrievers. She is second generation in Chesapeake Bay Retrievers, which is very impressive. And she judges confirmation shows as well as obedience, which is a very kind of specific niche, if you will, in the dog judging world. So I'm thrilled we're going to get to talk to Betsy about all this stuff. So welcome, Betsy. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? It's great to be here. I look forward to talking with you this afternoon. It's going to be so much fun. So your family also bred Chesapeake Bay Retrievers. And you live, I love this, what you say, between the Chesapeake and the Atlantic and that we brought our Chesapeakes back to their roots. I love that. Exactly. So give us, we call it the 411, how your journey transpired in this sport. Well, the story goes back to my mother was in college and she went home for the weekend with a friend and next door to her friend's house, there was a Chesapeake and the Chesapeake Bay Retriever would come over and visit during that weekend. So she saw this dog, did not know what kind it was and asked about it and was told. And she said, well, someday I'm going to have a Chesapeake. So some years passed, she got married the war, which, of course, at that time was World War II. The big yes. war came. And after the war was over, one of the first things that she did was in 1947, they went and bought their first Chesapeake Bay Retriever puppy. And it happened to be the last one in the litter, so they didn't really have a choice. They were living in Virginia at the time. It was after the war, and my dad had been sent to the naval base, and they were living in Newport News. Oh, so okay. they got this puppy either somewhere in Virginia or Maryland, and her name was Gloriana Second, and they put a CD title on her. At that point, my mother became very interested in showing dogs, 
and finding out what she could do about it. She became a member of the American Chesapeake Club. Her first dog show she ever went to was in Richmond, Virginia. And of course, the dog was the only one. So being a member of the club, she went ahead and she started contacting other people in the area. And eventually, they would go to a dog show and there would be two or three instead of just one. Well, she discovered that this first puppy that they bought had grown up to be a little bit oversized. But she did breed her and had a litter, and out of that litter, they had their first two champions. They went to Westminster and took these two dogs to Westminster. And from there, the story just grew and grew. So I actually went to my first dog show when I was just a little kid in Richmond, Virginia. And after we retired here, we went back to that same dog show. And interestingly enough, that was when she shared that with me, and it was the Virginia (laughs) Kennel Club. And I said, oh, "Oh." I said, in all the years, I never heard that part of the story. (laughs) So I, of course, grew up with Chesapeake's and we went to training classes and we went to a lot of match shows and we went to some dog shows. And I said, you know, I'd really like to do this, but this is the part that a lot of people don't know. I said, the Chesapeake is too big for me. I need a little dog. The next thing I knew, I had a retired Cocker Spaniel. Oh, my gosh. I trained the Cocker Spaniel. Yes. Well, it was the 50s. They were the number one breed and very popular. So I had this wonderful retired little Cocker Spaniel. And from there, after she was gone, then I had my own Chesapeake. And I showed her in obedience and put a CD on her and titled her. And that was my first official title. As I said, you know, I showed her in, it was called Children's Handling at that point. Yes. And from there went on to junior showmanship. Oh, I showed against people like Marsha Hall Brown, who went on to become a judge. Yes. And Bethany Hall, who was her sister. And they were my main competitors. I just remember that so distinctly. We lived on Staten Island in a part of New York City at that point and moved to New Jersey. And from then on, basically, I lived in New Jersey. Mm. And I finished my first champion when I was in high school. And, you know, after that, went to college, got married, started my own family. And, of course, we were given a puppy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the wedding present of choice. I mean, come on. Exactly. He became a two-time specialty winner, and I did a few other things with him. He had a working dog certificate. He became my husband's hunting dog. And so basically, as our family grew, so did our number of Chesapeake's. And (laughs) I did a lot of different things with them, finished their championships, obedience, and field work, and tracking. And those were the main things that were available at that particular time. My goal was to have a champion UDT, and I did do that. And I had a mentor who lived in Florida who really encouraged me to do this. Of course, my main mentors were my parents, but she had done several champion UDTs, and I thought, this is really great. So I achieved that in the early 90s, and from then, I went on to Judge Obedience. I applied to Judge Chesapeake's in 1988, and so I've been judging them for over 30 years. By the time I got through the obedience classes, that was the late 90s. Well, Chessie's... Chesapeake's, we had a Chessie when I was a kid, are just, they're great retrieving dogs, but they aren't necessarily the same mind or the same temperament as some of the other retrievers. No, they are very different from the other retrievers. They're not like Goldens and Labs who are, you know, love everybody and especially Goldens who want to be your friend. They're much more reserved. They're much more like some of the working breeds, particularly as the working breeds used to be, mm-hmm. German Shepherds and Dobermans, Rottweilers, but they have a real work ethic and they're serious. Yes. They're much more serious than your average Golden and Labrador. And they're not the dog for everyone, especially a first dog. If people come to get a puppy, I always ask if they had a dog growing up, you know, what kind did they have? 
And if they've had some of the working breeds that I just mentioned, mm. that's going to be a pretty good fit. If they've had a Chesapeake before, that usually is a 99% fit. As I said, they shouldn't be a first dog for anyone yeah. who's never had a dog. They're very, very smart. And you have to convince them sometimes that it was their idea to do something, yes. not really yours. And yes. you have to insist sometimes that they do this. Yes. And they can tend to try and take over. They're very protective. Mm-hmm. And that's really because of their heritage and why they were originally developed. But they can be protective of your car, your truck, and they're protective of your home. Mm-hmm. When they meet somebody and you introduce them and everything, they will remember them. They'll know the next time they see this person. They will know that they met them before. Good or bad. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, if you're going to let someone into your home, usually they're okay. I think the history of the Chesapeake is actually one of my favorite parts about the breed, and I'm hoping that you will help sort of develop that storyline because there are not a ton of American breeds, and the Chesapeake is one of them. Well, they were originally developed on the Chesapeake Bay, of course, and the story is that there was a shipwreck, and there were a couple of dogs on the shipwreck. One was on the ship, and they swam to the shores, and one was named Sailor, and one was named Canton, and they were not Chesapeake's, but they were more like the St. John's dog, which is a type of a Newfoundland retriever. The Labrador also goes back to that particular breed, but one Mm -hmm. went to the western shore, and one went to the eastern shore. They were not bred together. Sometimes there's a misunderstanding about that. And they were bred with a couple of the other local hunting dogs. And some of the background includes setters and bloodhounds and other retrievers. It's an interesting mix, and it does explain why we do have different types of coats and different kinds of hound markings because of the genetics that's actually behind the breed. The breed was really developed and records were kept by the wealthy landowners who owned property on the Chesapeake Bay and had huge hunting clubs. And they were the ones who really developed the breed. It was the local marketers, the duck hunters and the waterfowlers that used them for hunting back in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. That's what I was just going to ask. I thought it was late 1800s. Yeah, there were no limits on how many ducks you could take. Mm -hmm. And these hunters would take several hundred a day. Mm -hmm. And the Chesapeake would just go out in the bay and retrieve them all. That was his job. And when he wasn't actually swimming and retrieving, his job was to guard the pile of ducks so that nobody else would take them. And these ducks were sold to expensive restaurants in Baltimore. I mean, they had a place to go. And they were considered a real treat. Talk to us about the Chesapeake Bay, because that, to me helps define what the breed is, why it looks the way it does, why it developed the way it did. When you say they were retrieving a couple hundred ducks a day, we're not talking surfing weather here. (laughs) No, we're talking, of course, winters were much colder then. There was ice to be broken and it was much, much colder. And the Chesapeake Bay is huge. I mean, you're not talking just like a little lake. It is huge. Mm -hmm. And you get tremendous amounts of tides, wind, It can be a very unpleasant place during hunting season. But these hunters, that was how they made their living. And that was what they did. And it's a very powerful dog with a very specific coat that is able to excel at that job. Exactly. They're very strong. They're much stronger than they look. They've got very strong bone. And their coat was developed in order to keep them warm. They have what's referred to as a double coat. There's a very soft undercoat, and it's interesting because it's all one hair. The ends of the hair are very coarse and wiry, but as you get closer to the skin, 
the coat is actually very soft and the outside harshness keeps the inside, the other part of it dry. So on the coat, to me, the Chesapeake coat is such a hallmark of the breed. I mean, like can't get past it. And I don't know that I ever thought of it or realized, I guess, that that's all one hair shaft. It is one hair shaft. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that is fascinating. It is not two distinct types of a piece of hair. Right, like you think of an Akita, right? There's soft, fluffy stuff and there's long, pokey stuff. You know, when you talk about a double coat, right. that's what many people hear. And I guess, I mean, like I said, we had one. I've certainly shown and, and been around a lot of them. I don't know that I ever made that connection. That is fascinating. This coat, when a dog is in good full coat, and basically the coat is genetic, mm-hmm. you have to breed for it. Mm-hmm. And once you have it, you want to continue to breed for it and keep it. But a really full coat, when you place your hand on it along the back line or the top line where it's going to be quite full and lush, your hand can actually bounce because you've got this layer underneath, which is soft and this coarseness on top. And you put your hand on it and it actually can just, you can feel the coat that's underneath. If you see a dog that has no undercoat, he's going to look more like a chocolate Labrador. Right. It's going to be very slick and it's not going to be any kind of a puffiness is probably not the right word, but it just isn't going to look. Retrieve Chesapeake do not look like Labradors. It's no. an entirely different coat. And the Chesapeake coat should have a wave or it can have what you would call a curl. Right. But the curl that's disqualifying is the curl that is a 360 degree circle. It's a curl that goes all the way around and waves are very, very acceptable. The standard, of course, states specifically where the coat should be straight, such as on the legs and the face. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about the coat is that we do have several disqualifications. There's a disqualification for long coats because we have Irish setters. We have setters behind us which have coating along their legs and on their tail and underneath their body. Mm -hmm. And so we have had Chesapeake set up here. We still get them. There are genetic tests now, but it's a recessive. And we try not to breed. We try to eliminate it. It's not a health issue. Right. We do have tried to eliminate it from our gene pools. The other thing, as I had mentioned earlier, are the markings because there are bloodhounds and a couple of other hounds behind Chesapeake. There will be what we call hound markings on their faces and also matching on their legs. And again, that's not a health thing. It's just what they look like. And that's acceptable. That is totally Mm -hmm. acceptable. Some people love it. Others prefer not to have their dogs look like that. Interesting. We have all kinds of colors. We're the only breed that has the color called dead grass. Dead grass, my favorite. (laughs) Because when you look at your lawn in the wintertime, it has turned dead grass. And we have a lot of shades of dead grass, but that's really the main color. They can be as light as a yellow lab, and that can be a dead, considered a light dead grass. And the dark dead grass is more of a brown that has a lot of other shadings in between. And those Mm -hmm. are all considered various shades of dead grass. And the dead grass color was really initiated in the Midwest because of the cornfields. And Mm -hmm. a lot of hunting was done in the cornfields because it's on the flyway and ducks and geese would come down from Canada. And so that was where they really developed the dead grass color because they needed it as camouflage in the fields. Right. Absolutely. So much of what I do when I talk to people about breeds, whether I know them at all or not, is really looking at some of these things that are to do with how you live with them, how you judge them to a degree, how you breed them, why, and all of it goes back to function. And I think it's so important for people to understand that piece that 
every breed standard was written to describe a dog that was good at its job. One of the good things about Chesapeake's is that their appearance has not really changed over the years. Mm -hmm. If we go back and look at pictures of dogs that were being shown in the 1920s, a lot of our dogs still look like that today. If you look at some of the more popular retrievers, such as Goldens and Labradors, they don't resemble them at all. We only have one type. We do not have a field type. We do not have an obedience type. We have one type, and we've worked very, very hard to maintain that. You can take a dog from the field and show them in confirmation. We work very hard to keep the working ability in our breed. We have probably 150 champion dogs with Master Hunter titles. Mm -hmm. We're the only breed that has had dual champions, which means that they are field trial champions in addition to being a confirmation champion. Goldens and Labradors cannot achieve this, but right now we do have a Chesapeake who's a champion, and he's an amateur field champion, and he more likely than not will achieve his regular field champion. His dual champion. I love that. dual champion, yes. And it's very difficult because Chesapeake's have to beat the Labradors in field trials. It's all based on how they're judged and how they work, and they have to beat Labradors and any of the other retrievers that are running. But the Labradors Mm -hmm. are the main competitors. And, of course, field Labradors look a whole lot different than confirmation Labradors. My parents had field trial labs before we did any other Mm -hmm. purebred dogs, and I was that kid that spent my weekends with a white lab coat and a maggoty duck. Yes, I went to some of those when I was growing up. I didn't have to throw the maggoty ducks, fortunately. Oh, I did. I was the kid that they would send for the maggoty duck when the dog didn't get it. I'm just saying. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. You had to be the pickup. I was was the the pickup pickup dog. Oh, yeah. As far as living with a family, we had three children and we always had dogs in the house. Both of my daughters each had their own dogs. One finished the championship herself and put a CD on her and they both showed in juniors. Once they went off to college and my son was left at home, he became very attached to one of our dogs who was living in the house. And we came home several times and we would find this dog in his bedroom lying on his bed. Mm -hmm. And I said something to him. I said, you know, why was Coaster on your bed? And he said, oh, he said, I invite him up there all the time. I had no idea. (laughs) But I was really amused at that. But -hmm. they're really good family dogs and they do well with children. You know, they've said to be a one-person dog, and sometimes they are, but more than anything, they really are a family dog. I mean, my husband and I have had dogs that we've shared. I've had my own dog, and that dog wouldn't listen to him, but we also have dogs that we've both shared in the training, and the dog, you know, responds to both of us. I think the thing that stood out to me from the dog that we had when I was a kid, it was literally a stray that my dad found and never could find its owner, and it just sort of lived with us. She was tough. I mean, like we really only had field trial labs at that point. I hadn't met wire hair pointers like I have now, but that level of just mental and physical toughness. I mean, she would pull raccoons out of pine trees, like no problem. This is, you know, that to me always kind of stood out about her. Yeah, I agree with the physical toughness of Chesapeake's. I mean, we've had them kill woodchucks and kill Mm -hmm. raccoons, you know, that kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And they will keep going all day. I mean, you could just keep throwing Mm -hmm. a bumper for them and they won't stop. Mm -hmm. You're the one that gets tired, so you have to stop. However, most of them are really quite mentally sensitive. Oh, interesting. You can crush them with a harsh word. (laughs) And it's very interesting because they are so physically tough 
and they don't feel much pain. I didn't have that one. You couldn't crush her with a word. So that's interesting to me. (laughs) Yeah, no, most of them you can. They're really very Mm. sensitive mentally. And I think it's because they really do want to please you, even though they have their own agendas sometimes. They really Mm -hmm. do want to please you and do what's right and what you want to do. It's one of the reasons why some of them don't do well with pro trainers. In the field trial world, for sure. In the field trial world, exactly. The pro trainer has to be really adept and really good at working with Chesapeake Bay Retrievers, and some of them are. They've developed their method of training so that it will work with the Chesapeake, mm-hmm. and they can't be as harsh with the Chesapeake as they can with the Labrador. Yeah, You just can't be as harsh with them because they will quit. They will just mm-hmm. thumb your nose at you and mm-hmm. say, I'm not doing this. I don't care what you do to me. I'm not doing it, yeah. you know? Yeah, I do know. But they are very smart, and they sometimes they're smarter than their owners, and that's when they get into trouble. Yes. Wire hairs remind me very much of the Chessie we had, and they have similar kind of, they're a working dog in the sporting group, a working mind in the sporting group. Right. And I really admire that. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion cares passionately about pets and makes sure their policy has what it takes to serve you and your furry companions. In fact, they are the first pet insurance provider to cover certain health conditions associated with breeding animals through their specialized breeding rider. Their industry-leading coverage does not stop there. Trupanion's free breeder support program also allows you to send your litters home protected with an offer for a Trupanion policy. Learn more about all of the perks that Trupanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. Talk to me about over the course of the history of the breed that you've been involved with it. Have you seen the temperaments soften not soften, change at all. How do you feel about that? Because the one we had was many years ago and the ones I've seen more recently don't appear to have quite as much edge as that dog did. I agree with you. I feel that the temperaments have been modified. Mm. Part of it is homogenizing a breed so that it's suitable to do a lot of different AKC events or Mm. events with other registries. But part of it also is what has happened with some of the average dog owners now Mm -hmm. in the 21st Mm -hmm. century. And the Chesapeake temperament has been modified because there are some breeders whose dogs are not as active. They do not require quite as much exercise. Most of them do need to have a job to do. They are not Mm -hmm. happy being a couch potato, Mm -hmm. but there are some lines that tend to be more like that. Mm -hmm. And these dogs are suitable for going to live with families in developments or housing associations where there are a lot of children around and they all go in and out of each other's houses at free will. And these Chesapeake's are fine with that. But back in the old days, that wouldn't be, couldn't have somebody just go in and out of your house like that. There would be a problem. Yes. So I do remember going to shows probably 20 and 30 years ago. At this point, it's probably 30 years ago. And we had big entries of say 30 or 40 at an average show. The specials would all be standing around the ring, around the ring entirely. These are outdoor shows, and Mm -hmm. they would all be a good six feet apart. Yes. And you had to do that because they'd see another male, and they would be like, this is my ring. I own this ring. That's right. And things have really changed since then. Mm -hmm. You'll rarely see an instance of 
two male Chesapeake's that don't even know each other mm-hmm. looking at each other, you know, with a strange look on their face. Mm-hmm. It's just their temperaments have definitely been modified, you know, and some of it is good, but I don't like to see them lose their original protectiveness. Right. And just being so alert and knowing what's right and what's wrong. Old school dogs were stand up, but they were selective. Exactly. Exactly. They didn't just randomly bite people to bite them. Exactly. No, there was a reason. There was a Mm -hmm. reason. And even living here, I don't really see that many Chesapeake's out and about. But when we first did move to Virginia, there was Chesapeake sitting in the back of a pickup truck. And you knew that was his pickup truck. Mm-hmm. You were not going to go near his pickup truck. Do not truck. walk next to it. <laughs> no, and he was very handsome. He had a great head. Of course, I just stood there and looked at him and said, wow, what a gorgeous head. I wish we had more like that in the show ring, you know. Right. But that's one of the things that they do is they will guard their vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's an important thing for people to know and understand about the breed. Yes. And the families that do get them have to be an active family and they have to know that they're going to have to spend a fair amount of time with their dog, exercising them on a daily basis, whether it's walking or throwing a ball or throwing a bumper, taking them swimming. This dog is not just going to lie around and be happy. Right. And they need, you said a job, but I think it's important to mention it's a mental job, right? Like it's not just go run. Like they have to think. Exactly. I tell people whether they're getting the slippers or the mail or the newspaper or, you know, whatever. Exactly. There's a function. Mm-hmm. Okay. I always, always recommend obedience classes and puppy classes yeah. and we'll give a future buyer information on them in their location so that they can give them a really good start once they get them home. Excellent. Obedience is absolutely a necessity. Yeah. And they're a pretty healthy, long-lived breed? They're pretty good. The longest I've had any of mine live has been close to 14 Mm-hmm. I'd say 10 to 12, 11 to 13 is average. Mm-hmm. For some reason, the bitches usually live longer than the dogs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, they're not 15-year-olds, but, you know, right. they certainly don't leave us at 8 or 9 for the most part. So right. they're a pretty excellent. healthy breed. Excellent, 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 excellent. Okay, so let's talk about judging because you fill one of the most interesting niche positions in the sport that not very many people do. My longtime favorite was Kent Delaney. I loved him. Yes, <laughs> it yes similar I did too. Such a lovely man. Yeah. So talk to us about that and the challenges you face, but also the things that it allows you to bring to your judging on both sides of the building. Well, there are probably less than a dozen of us that do judge obedience all the way through and more than just one confirmation group. Mm -hmm. And it works quite well for both of us, you know, for those that are involved. I feel that it's very helpful to show chairman, of course, but that wasn't why I originally did what I did. I started judging confirmation because my brother, Nathaniel Horn, said, you should judge. I started to judge. You should judge, too. I said, okay, we'll do this. Okay. (laughs) So when I got Chesapeake's and then I didn't do anything for a while because we were raising our family and everything and then finally got started again. And in the meantime, I went ahead and applied to start to do novice obedience. And so I was doing just Chesapeake's and novice, which isn't very much. And as time went on and I had all five retrievers because, you know, when you were a breeder owner, you just didn't get a whole lot of breeds at one time. And I had gotten through utility and all of a sudden I was a very desirable person because I could judge all the obedience classes and I could do five retrievers. And of course, Mm -hmm. this is back in the 90s when entries were huge. Mm -hmm. And to have an entry of 80 Goldens, that was just normal. Yeah. Oh, every weekend. 
Yes, and of course, our obedience entries were way, way up at that point in time. And if you judge mm-hmm. one or two classes, you had a full day. Now you judge all the classes, and you still don't have a full day. Right. But all of a sudden, I could judge three and four day clusters, and all I had was five retrievers and all the obedience. So it was really, really helpful to show chairman for that particular reason. And I'm still very useful, and the other judges that are doing both also will find that. And we'll either start out doing obedience for a couple of days and finish up with confirmation or vice versa. I feel that it's really helped me. In the obedience ring, it's very interesting because when a good dog walks in the ring, you just know immediately that it's a champion. You know, when they have finished their run, I'll say, is your dog a champion? Did they finish? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, you can just tell the good ones you've learned to distinguish. The other thing is it's helped me to learn more about other breeds that I don't judge just learning more about their temperaments and how they work and what their attitudes are like. So it's a learning experience. Obedience has really, really been extremely helpful. One interesting side note was that I've been doing a fair amount of national specialty shows because Mm -hmm. of where I live, and they've discovered a new site called the Founders Inn in Virginia Beach. Yes. And so just recently, I did obedience and rally at the Great Pyrenees National, which was just like a week and a half ago. And I don't know too much about Great Pyrenees. Well, I know a lot more now. (laughs) And my steward has had them for years. And she said, they're a guardian breed. She Mm -hmm. said, you're going to find that when they're in the ring, they are going to see something outside the ring. And they're just going to stare at it because they're going into their guardian mode. Well, that certainly did happen. That certainly did happen. And it was, they were focused. And it wasn't that they were not paying attention to their owner. They were doing their job. Mm -hmm. And it was really very interesting because we never see them in obedience and we rarely see them in rally. And the entry was small, but it was very enjoyable to do. And that's just a breed difference that, you know, getting that experience of judging that many great Pyrenees that I had never had before. So on the other hand, Siberian Huskies are pretty fun. And I (laughs) knew they would be because I've had the occasional Siberian Husky, especially in obedience. I mean, they can just take off and run around the ring. So I knew what I was getting into there. And and we had a lovely time with the Siberian Huskies. Kent Delaney judging the Clumber National Obedience and then filling in to judge sweepstakes because the judge couldn't get there or something. That particular Mm -hmm. year, I don't think I've ever laughed so hard. They just, Clumbers are a breed with a sense of humor. They are. It was just so great to have somebody who could appreciate and laugh along with the owners and not be horrified. Who was the judge? Kent Delaney. Oh, Kent. Yes. Yeah. 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 Back to judging both. As far as the club's benefit, I think it helps them because it's one fewer judge that Mm -hmm. they have to bring in that's traveling to get there. Scheduling, I think, is a problem for the superintendent Mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, obedience judges can may judge eight hours. Confirmation judges may judge seven hours. And if I end up doing both on the same day, I am given eight hours of judging. So I say, okay, they're taking advantage of me, but that's the way it is. So. <laughs> as far as doing one one day and one the next day, there really isn't any kind of conflict. It's a whole different mindset. You have a little bit less time to make a split-second decision in obedience than you do in the breed. In the breed ring, you can always say, well, take them around one more time. Right. In obedience, you've got to go on to the next exercise, and you can think about something unusual that happened in the prior exercise. But by the time that run is over, you pretty much have to mark your book and tell that exhibitor whether or not they qualified. That's an interesting perspective. I'd never really thought about that. A little more pressure time-wise because of that. And unusual things still continue to happen. They really do. Exhibitors do funny things that you would think, now, if the rule says that you can't do this or you should do this, can you do this? 
mm-hmm. know, and all of a sudden somebody will do this. And then, of course, rules can be interpreted different ways. I mean, they're actually mm-hmm. called regulations, but they can be interpreted different ways. In a way, it almost becomes like a breed standard. One person will read the breed standard and look at a dog and, you know, make a decision. And another judge will look at the same dog and think something entirely different. It's how you interpret the breed standard. But obedience is a little more cut and dried. Yeah. And I enjoy both. Physically, obedience is much more demanding. You're moving around a lot more. Right. With confirmation, depending on the judge, some of them don't leave the table. Some of them go out in the middle of the ring. But physically, obedience is definitely more demanding. Mm -hmm. And we have a time schedule to keep, too, the same that the confirmation judges do. We do fewer dogs per hour. So many clubs have dropped obedience and rally because of that, because we don't do 25 dogs an hour. So, Well, it's space and it's, you know, all of the things. And talk to me about rally. You know, you said you started judging rally probably about the time it came in. Right, right. How do you like it? Do you find it to be the sort of, if you will, gateway drug that people were hoping it was going to be? Or what do you think? Well, in a way, yes. It's a lot more user-friendly for the exhibitor and the dog because Mm -hmm. obedience is very formalized. And in many instances, the handler may only give one command to tell the dog what to do. And if they don't Mm -hmm. do it the first time, they don't qualify. But in rally, you can give multiple commands. The lower levels, you can clap your hands, you can slap your legs. You can really, really constantly encourage the mm-hmm. dog to do something. There reaches a point where if the dog isn't going to do it, you have to continue on. But rally is easier, much easier to attain several titles. Mm-hmm. But rally has changed because they've added the rally championship, which is called the Rock. Right, And so we're getting a lot more work that is really superior in the levels that are required for the dog to pass and to get scores. There's a whole scoring setup so that if you get 100 points, you get this many points towards your rock, as opposed to only getting 90 points, then you would only get so many points towards your rock. And it's a whole point scale, you know, which is similar to the mock and agility or the Mm -hmm. option in obedience. Mm -hmm. And so I feel the quality of the work has really, really improved because you have exhibitors that are really dedicated to, they want those first places and second places. They want to get 100s and 99s. They want those high scores because they're working on their rock and they're not just satisfied to go in and get a green ribbon, you know, and walk out and say, okay, I got an RA to, you know, I got a leg on my RA today. Well, what was your score? Oh, 73. You know, as you know, certificates never tell you what the scores are. So that part of it doesn't matter, but it's much more enjoyable to judge the dogs that are doing so well than to have the dogs and handlers that are just trying to squeak by and sort of sending in the entry and hoping that they'll pass. I think that's another similarity between obedience and confirmation. It's always more fun to judge great dogs. Exactly. Yes. Then that's the bonus. I mean, in the confirmation ring, you just wait for that dog to walk in and you're like, oh, look at that. That's my winner's dog. You know, before you ever see any of the other competition, you know, immediately. I mean, I had a cardigan Welsh Corgi like that earlier this year and the six to Mm. nine month puppy dog walked in. I was like, oh, wow. He looks like he just walked off the illustrated standard. I mean, he was amazing. He did go on to go winner's dog and best of winners. And then I found out that he had done really well at his national, you know, like two weeks before when Mm. he was still a six month old puppy. Oh my gosh. But as you say, that's the real fun of judging is when you get a really good one especially a youngster that walks in your ring. Yeah, I agree. So do me a favor and tell me a little bit more about The Rock. This is something we haven't covered on the podcast, and it's an event that I know barely enough about to even say its name out loud. So (laughs) 
Oh my goodness, you should have asked me for more details. Is Okay, you have to get what are called triple Qs, and you have to have 20 right. triple Qs, and those triple Qs come from, first of all, you start out with rally novice, yep. and then you don't have to do rally intermediate. That's optional. That is also on leash. Then you move to your off-leash work, and you have rally advanced, rally excellent, and rally master. And when they developed the rock, they added the rally master class. The other titles, you get three legs, you qualify, you have the title, the rally Mm -hmm. master title, you must have 10 qualifying scores. While you're earning your rally master title, however, you can accrue your points towards the rock. And you have to have, as I said, 20 triple Qs, and they come from advanced, excellent, and master. And you have to have so many points. And I quite honestly don't know how many That's points. okay. <laughs> okay, because it could be 750, which is I what don't. it is for some of the other venues. You know, it's structured. Yeah, yeah, I just was curious. So you have to go to at least 20 rally trials to get those triple Qs. And if for some reason something crazy happens, if you miss a sign in rally, it's a course set up with approximately anywhere from 12 to 15 or 16 stations. Mm-hmm. And if you should go from station 9 to station 11, you've missed number 10, you will automatically fail. And that can happen. It's crazy. That can just happen. That would be why I don't do it, Betsy. (laughs) Okay. So you don't get that triple Q that day because you failed in a class because you, the handler, made an Mm -hmm. error, not the dog. Or you could still make errors as long as you qualify. A perfect score is 100. A qualifying Mm -hmm. score is 70. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you will still get points. But the higher your score, the more points you will earn towards this rock. So you're committed to at least 20 trials. And some clubs will actually hold two trials in one day because entries have fallen off a lot. And then mm-hmm. you're asking the dog to do six classes. And that's wow. a tremendous amount, both for dog and handler. I have mm-hmm. a friend who's working on one now with her Chesapeake, and she said, I won't do double trials again. She mm-hmm. just showed this past weekend, and there were shows, trials on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So she got three triple Qs and, you know, nine placements, a really good working dog. And, you know, went in the ring three times each day. Wow. And she had done a double trials once or twice. She said, I won't do those again. It's just too much. Just too much. Yeah, that's crazy. So that's great. And I appreciate that very much because I want to make sure that all of our sports are represented. And I just haven't spent a lot of time on rally because I don't know much about it. So this was perfect. (laughs) Well, they have a rally national now. Yes. I saw that. It started several years ago, mm-hmm. you know, the same way that they have the obedience competition and the agility, the agility competition. The rally national is not quite as competitive because your required scores have to be, I think you have to have three scores of like 92 and up, and that's not mm-hmm. tremendously competitive. They need to raise the bar a little bit on that one. But they get lots and lots of people that enter so many that then it becomes a draw and then not everybody right. can go that wants to, and they're not necessarily getting the best ones. Because the dogs that had 93s might end up there instead of the dogs that had a whole slew of 98s. Interesting. And so do you see the people that are competing in rally moving on to obedience? That's kind of my question. Is it building obedience or is it just simply building another sport? It's really building another sport. There are some who will go on to obedience, but basically it really has built another sport, particularly now that they have their own championship. Right. But a lot of the people... A lot of champions show in rally. They may not go at the top level, but -hmm. we'll see a lot more variants of breeds in rally than we do in obedience. Obedience Mm -hmm. has become so formalized that when you see a certain amount of breeds, and basically that's about it. Mm -hmm. But in rally, we see everything. We see lots of terriers. 
We'll see the occasional toy. We see lots of different breeds in rally. So it's a lot more fun that way. Mm-hmm. You know, in obedience, you see a lot of Goldens and Border Collies and Labradors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just the usual, I wouldn't Shelties. call them obedience dogs. Right. But yes, exactly, exactly. But in rally, we see everything. So it's really fun from that perspective. Well, and I think growing the base of the sport, I mean, that's a huge thing. And then do you see those people going on then to confirmation, to breeding? Are we really growing purebred dogs? Or again, are we just growing the sport? These are the kinds of things that I'm curious about. The people from Rally, Mm -hmm. not necessarily. They're pretty much already, if they have a show quality dog, they're pretty much already committed to showing their dog in confirmation. Okay. You know, they have to be six months old to show in rally Mm -hmm. or obedience Mm -hmm. the same way as they do in confirmation. And by that time, they have a pretty good idea. I mean, as I said, we do see lots of different breeds and a lot of them are champions. If I look at the Mm -hmm. catalog later, a lot of them are champions and they're doing something else with the dog. They want to put a title after its name. So they go to rally because it is basically the lower levels are easier than obedience. Mm -hmm. And some of them get hooked and they decide to do more. My Sheba, for example, I would take him into a rally ring where he had to be on a leash, whereas I Mm -hmm. wouldn't start him in novice because he's a Sheba. (laughs) Yes. Yes, he's a Sheba. (laughs) You know, like that. Well, okay. Now, there's a breed where the temperament has been somewhat modified since Mm. they came into AKC. Mm -hmm. I don't know. The one I have was bred in Canada. He is literally not breed typical. Like he thinks he's a golden retriever, but truly I still think he's the exception rather than the norm in the breed, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm not saying that the whole breed has been modified. I mean, it's, you know, I'm working on the non-sporting group sort of, and you know, with my experience with Sheba's is that you're still going to be careful with them. Oh yes. Because you don't necessarily know what you have on the table in front of you. Definitely. But from when they first came in, I mean, the word was, well, they're from Japan and they're kind of like Akitas. They're cute and they're little, but be careful. You know, and especially when a breed first comes into AKC, you know, you have some knowledgeable people that latch on to another breed, but you also have some people that don't really know what they have there. So Correct. And I had Akitas for years. I owned Akitas as well as showing a million oh, you of did? them. Oh, okay. oh, my gosh. They are people with fur. I love that breed with a passion. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. I lost... Too many of them and my own personal last one I lost to bloat and I just I couldn't emotionally so you went nope. so you downsized. So I downsized and this is a dog bred by Susan Norris Jones up in Canada and he is like mm-hmm. he's truly amazing. He's just the mm-hmm. kindest. I have zero dog aggression. I have zero oh, that's wonderful. human aggression. Yeah. Zero. He holds his little paws out for me to do his toenails. Like clearly, oh he's not pure. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, I was going to say, but there are lots of breeds that aren't going to do that. So no. you have a real exception, not just because he's a Sheba, but because he does that to begin with. He's better than my wire hairs. I mean, he's beautifully mm-hmm. bred. He's beautifully raised. Mine is a beautiful dog. He did very, very well when I showed him. It's just, I think that Across the board, you know, when we talk about Chessies, we talk about wire hair pointers, we talk about Shebas, we talk about Akitas, we talk about a lot of breeds that have had the edges softened a little bit as they have right. yeah. gone forward into the 21st century. And I think that that exactly. that's your thought as well. Yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think in some instances it's overdone yes. and they're losing some of their breed type because mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Because temperament to me is type. 
It is, exactly. It's part of what the breed is. And there are some breeds in the herding group, which I judge, which are sharp. Mm-hmm. And you still have to be cautious with them. But I appreciate that because I feel that it's what the breed is. Yes. But some of them are becoming very, I like the word homogenized. I really Mm -hmm. do. I just think Mm -hmm. that that fits what has happened to some of those breeds. Yeah. I've always said softened, but homogenized is actually probably a little bit more accurate. So, all right. Well, Betsy, I have taken a large chunk of your day and I am absolutely grateful for your time. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. You guys, I am so excited. I've been wanting to create a live call-in show forever. So finally, I decided to just do it. (laughs) Dog shows, dog grooming, dog handling, dog breeding, you name it. Join the conversation live and get trusted answers to all of your questions. No more Facebook groups, no more 20,000 answers to the same question, just solid knowledge. Amazing. Start planning now. Visit the Pure Dog Talk Facebook page for a link to our YouTube live lightning round with Laura. Be on the lookout for live chat opportunities, special guests, they'll be a secret, live calls from the audience, and more. Let's kick off the new year in pure dog talk style. Like the NPR of dogdom, pure dog talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding, and tools to your tech box to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.